church of God, the church of Christ in the city in Allen, Texas. And and I want to begin by talking about Jesus and how I, I am fascinated by Jesus Christ. There's several reasons I'm fascinated by Jesus Christ. I'm fascinated by Jesus because he is holy, and yet sinners are drawn to him in the most incredible way. I'm fascinated by Jesus because he preaches a way of life that is so counterintuitive to the way that the world teaches us, but it is still good news, and it is the best way of life possible. And the more I put it on, the more I get to experience the goodness of this life, the abundance of of that life. I'm, I'm fascinated by Jesus in the way he afflicts the comfortable, but he comforts the afflicted. There's something about that message that stirs something in me. I'm fascinated by Jesus because he was fearless in the face of death. There aren't that many people that I know that can face death like Jesus did, but there's something about that man Jesus, fully God, fully man, yes, but that man Jesus who was willing to fearlessly go to the cross on our behalf. I'm fascinated by Jesus because of how he disrupted the social mores and the social norms when it came to the treatment of women, when it came to the treatment of children in the society, when it came to the treatment of those who were on the outside, the slaves. He somehow raises these people up and they find themselves central to the story. It's absurd to think that women in that culture would have been the first witnesses of the resurrection. But Jesus believed that was the best way for the story to get told because all the men had fled, let's be honest. But the women were there to tell the story. I'm fascinated by Jesus because people who tend to despise Christianity tend to love Jesus anyway. Have you noticed this? They're they're, they're drawn to Jesus even if they don't have the commitment of being Christians yet or, or maybe they have another commitment altogether. There's something about Jesus that draws people to him. I'm fascinated by Jesus because people of other religions even admire him and can see things in him. In in fact, I'm hearing stories out of the Muslim world where it's Isa in their religion, in their book in Arabic is the name of Jesus, but, but they're beginning to come to see Jesus in a whole new way. The stories I'm hearing out of the Middle East, he's appearing in visions to people in the Middle East, and and there are Muslims that are being converted through visions as they share with that with others. I'm fascinated. That this Jesus didn't just die on a cross and get resurrected. He's still appearing to people today. I'm fascinated by Jesus. Because he lived a mere 33 years on earth, but he turned the world upside down in a matter of 33 years. I'm fascinated by Jesus because even though he preached to crowds of thousands, he poured his life, most importantly, into the 12 that he knew would be the ones to carry this movement forward. And so he wasn't enamored by the crowds first and foremost. He, was in, he, he decided the most important work he could do was with just a few. And maybe that's a word for us in our day as well. I'm fascinated by Jesus because he heals people. and He tells them to be quiet about it, and they can't possibly be quiet about it. What is that about Jesus? I'm fascinated by Jesus, and I could go on and on about this. But the last fascination I want to share with you tonight is the one I want to camp on a little bit. I'm fascinated by Jesus. Because he helped me love God again. What do I mean? Well, sometimes when you open up the story to the beginning of Scripture and you begin to read some of these stories in the Older Testament, I'm not so sure about this God that I read about. You ever had this experience? 
you, you want to read through the Bible or you go to that book and you read this story about God commanding the genocide of peoples and tribes, does that ever bug you? For me, that was a real problem. And I wondered, how, how could this be? The Christianity I've grown up in, and yet these stories that are in Scripture, I, I, have, I had trouble with that God and that picture of God. Or, or not just Scripture. Let's talk about how many of us have prayed prayers in our life, and the stumbling block for us was those prayers that didn't get answered that we hoped would. And, and we're just like, God, why, why wouldn't you show up and do something about this? It's the unanswered prayers that are that issue with God. Or maybe it's a story like Abraham and Isaac, right? I mean, yeah, we can kind of do our moralisms where we decide that's an okay story, but anybody who comes to me later today and tells me they hear what Abraham heard, I'm going to make sure they don't do what God's told them to do. And yet this is the God we read about and the God that disturbed me from time to time. But there's a passage that changed my mind about God the Father, and I want to share that with you tonight, and it's through Jesus that I began to open my eyes again to a whole new way of looking at who God the Father is. It's in the book of Hebrews. It's in the Newer Testament. Hebrews, in the first chapter, it's the first words written by, well, we don't know who exactly. I don't know who writes Hebrews. I've got my ideas, but we'll save that for another day. Hebrews 1, verse 1. In the past, that's verse 3. We'll get to that in a minute. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. What this passage is saying is that in the past, God spoke. He spoke through prophets. He spoke through mediators who heard a word from God and then shared that word with the people of God. That was amazing to think that God could speak through people. But a day came where he was going to do something even one better than that. He was going to send his son Jesus into the world. And the words he speaks through Jesus, the, the actions that he gives through Jesus, this is going to be the clearest, most perfect, exact representation of who God is. So in Jesus, God comes to earth. Jesus is the exact representation of God. In other words, if you know, want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Or in other words, or said another way, if it can't be said of Jesus, it can't possibly be true of God. And that's what began to shift my thinking was I had all these problems with these pictures of God that I've read before. But if Jesus is the most perfect, the exact representation of who God is, then if I love me some Jesus, then I can love me some God. Because whatever said about him in the past, I I don't know how to sort through all that. All I know is this man who walked on the earth named Jesus is the exact representation of who he is. So whatever Jesus did... That's the clearest picture we can have in the world of who God is. And i got to love God the Father if he's going to show most clearly through this man, Jesus, who fascinates me. And that idea fascinated me for the, when I considered it for the first time because I had trouble with God, but again, I love Jesus. And so my belief is that the life of Jesus should be the pattern of the church. Does anyone want to say amen to that? The life of Jesus is how we pattern our lives after But churches so often fail to put Jesus on display in attractive and in winsome ways, don't we? It's like, 
Sometimes we just, we got to go to the bad news before we can present the good news. And so we, we tell people about, you know, do you know where you'd end up if you went to, if you died tonight, right? Like, we have to bring people down before we can bring them up or something, right? But, but to put Jesus on the display, to, to be able to show them the good news of what God's future is and what Jesus brought to bring fullness and wholeness to the earth, to heal people and to say, this is God's future. This is where things are headed. That's a picture of God to get excited about. Which leads me to share a couple of options when it comes to the kind of church we can be. There are churches that are bounded set churches, okay? Just kind of stick with me on this language. Bounded set churches. And bounded set churches organize themselves kind of like a circle, okay? And if you can imagine kind of people being dots, which is hard to imagine, but it's the best representation I'm going to get this, this, this evening. Just imagine these people as dots, right? You've got some that are inside the circle. You've got some that are outside the circle. Just imagine these as people that are in our community, some are in our church. You've got all these people all over the circle. And a bounded set church knows exactly where the boundary is when it comes to those who are inside and those who are outside of the church. Like We, we need to be real clear about what the entrance requirements are. We need to know uh, who's in and who's out. There's a lot of time uh, defining where the boundary markers are. And I'm guessing some of you kind of grew up in a church maybe like this, right? That you know exactly what those boundary markers are. For, in the churches I grew up in, baptism was one of those key boundary markers, right? I mean, you knew you were kind of in the circle if you had that, but, but there were a lot of other things that went along with that, let's be honest, right? Unspoken things. All, all, all cultures, all churches have unspoken things that are part of what it means to be a part of the church. So the focus is who is in and who is out, which creates an us-them mentality, doesn't it? Because if we're sitting on the inside of the circle, and we know who those are, are on the outside, then we know that they're the them, they're the those people, and we're the, the insiders who seem to have it all together because we've, we've found the requirements to fit inside the church we need to be inside of. And so these entrance requirements, we let people know that if you'll do these things and you can come and be a part of the inside of the circle, you'll know that you're in. And, and, and Scripture certainly points to some of those things. But what that does is creates what I was talking about this morning. It creates kind of a membership perspective that says if you'll fulfill these requirements, if you'll uh, you know, behave in the right ways and believe in the right ways, you can belong. That's what I'm kind of going further in that I shared with you this morning. And, and a lot of you grew up in these churches where you knew where that line was, and you had fin- there, were, there were fence keepers of the, the line, weren't there? There were those watchdogs that made sure that we didn't kind of step outside of that, and we made sure that people crossed that line. And evangelism in a church like that is real simple, right? We're trying to reach those people who haven't met their entrance requirements and find a way to get them in. And once we get them in, then we find another group that we can bring in, which is part of the story of the gospel, making disciples of all nations. If I could use an analogy that I have no idea about for a moment, then uh, go with me on this. I, I have not, I'm not the, uh, a farmer or the son of a farmer, okay? I'm a city boy. I don't know that I've ever planted a crop in my life that's actually grown and done anything good. We kill plants in our house. But just go with me on this farming analogy, and some of you can correct me later who may have grown up on farms. But most farms in the United States, as, as I kind of understand the way we do farming, we Especially, uh, not so much farming of crops, but let's talk about ranches and cattle, and cattle when it comes to that. Let's, let's use that imagery. The important part about having a ranch and having cattle is you want to make sure those cattle are taken care of and that they don't get lost, they don't get taken off by a wild animal of some kind, they don't die, you've got to take care of them. But it's very important if you have a ranch to fence that ranch in, isn't it? You've you got to make sure that those, those cattle don't find a way out because if they find a way out, then the rest of the cattle might find a way out and you've got nothing left after that. 
And in a sense, this is kind of how our our church system has worked over the years. We had a bounded set system that knew where the, the boundary markers were, and we spent so much time, because this is what you have to do. You have to always check the fence if you're a cattle rancher like that. You have to make sure there's no holes. You have to make sure there's no way for the, 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 the cattle to get out. And so our commitment lies at the boundary, and our conversations tend to focus around the boundary. People tend to congregate around the boundary. And we become, in this model, judges. Because we're saying we know exactly where that line is. And so it's our job to play the role of judge when really the truth is it's God who's the judge. We, we have some sense in Scripture about where those lines are, but it's a lot harder to figure that out the older you get and the more you sense questions in your life and, and wonder about that. And so the goal of all of this was to get people inside the line. And the focus was getting people in, and, and that leads us to kind of a minimal, a lowest common denominator spirituality. Because the, the focus is getting people across the line, but it didn't matter what you did with them once you got across the line. It was just, they're in, they're saved, we're good, let's go find some others, right? It's kind of like this. I, when I was a teenager, there was this question we liked to ask our youth ministers, our student ministers. We, we'd ask this question when it came to pu- sexual purity. We'd ask the question, how far is too far? And that question is a question of minimal requirements, isn't it? It's really a question of how far away from God's greatest standard can we possibly be and still be okay? Which is not a question about holiness. It's not a question about wholeness. It's a question about just enough. And I think what bounded set churches do is in some ways they leave us at the boundary knowing we've gotten in wondering what's next. And so... All we're left to do is sit on our hands waiting for Jesus to return at that point or at least grab some people across the line with us. But there's another model of church I want to share with you tonight. It's a centered set church. So bounded set set churches are focused on the boundary, of course. That's what the line kind of points us to. And in the same sense, you've got people in a centered set kind of church or organization or group. You know, I'm I'm talking about a church right now. You've got people all over this, just like you've got people all over this church as well. But, but centered set churches organize themselves around a center. Not, not about the boundary, who's in and who's out. It's what's the center, what's the core of what we're about. And i got to tell you, Greenville Oaks is desiring to grow more and more to be a centered set church. So what is our center? Well, Hebrews 12 talks about this. We read Hebrews 1 earlier, but Hebrews 12 is another passage. I just want to quickly read to you. Hebrews 12 Verse 2. In fact, I'll back up to verse 1, even though 2 is what's up there. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before me endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What the Hebrews writer is trying to say, we fix our eyes on the sinner. We fix our eyes on what this is all about. And when it comes down to it, it's the person of Jesus that we surround. That's what we, that is our core. That is our essential. That's the thing we cannot give up. It's Jesus Christ. So to go with this farming analogy a little bit, I mean, in a centered set church, there is some kind of boundary. It's just that it's not so much the focus. It's there somewhere, but you're not really exactly sure, you know, where that might be. Uh, but I hear, again, I'm not a farmer, but I hear in certain portions of the world that this is a really hard way to farm because there's so much vast property that how in the world would you 
fence something in and, and spend all your time at the boundary trying to mend that fence. Places in Australia I hear about where there's so many vast acres of land, it's just you, you can't fence it in. So brainstorm with me for a minute. How do you make sure you keep your cattle close if you can't put a fence around it and spend all your energy at the boundary? How, what do you do? And what you do is you sink a well at the center of the property. You put a life source at the center of the property because the truth is those cattle know that if they can't get that resource, if they can't get that life source anywhere else, they're going to have to come back to the well and they're going to be centered here. And I, I draw dots out up here, but the truth is every one of these people are headed in, a, in one direction or another, aren't they? I mean, all of us are either headed toward the cross, toward the center of things, or we're headed in another direction. There's no neutral life in the, in the life of faith. So the question in a centered set church is, what's our center? Our center is Jesus Christ. The center is the cross. So back to this whole church discussion. Bounded set churches are focused on the boundary. But centered set churches are focused on the driving passion that is all about fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so here, if you're inside the circle, it doesn't matter which direction you're going, you're in. But here the question is, are you headed towards the center or are you really headed towards someplace else? Like we, we can't be the one who's the judge in the end. We have a sense in Scripture what those boundaries are. But if we are focused on the center, if we are headed towards the cross, if Jesus is the focus of our life and our faith, we don't have to worry about if we're in or not because we're headed to the person who saves us in the end anyway. Does this make sense what I'm trying to share with you tonight? Like it's the difference between minimal requirements and just getting across the line and knowing who's them and who's us. And it's so fun to play that game sometimes because it's, it's, it's nice to be a part of the in crowd. But it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to be a church that isn't most focused on what separates us from other religious groups. We want to be a church that decides that if people have the same center we do, We're allies. Because here's the truth about the 21st century in North America. It's not going all that well for Christianity. And it might be conceivable that there was a day in America's past where the luxury of division was something we could kind of squabble about. We no longer have the luxury of division. We no longer have this ability to just kind of decide who's in and out and have our little group and know we're different than other group people's groups. No, we have to partner with all who call Jesus Lord. You better believe in our high schools. You want your students to find anyone they can that's following Jesus Lord because that is a huge advancement over all the others that aren't. And it's nice for them to have a faith that's a lot like ours and have a similar theology. That would be great on top of things, but that's not a luxury we can have in our high schools, is it? It doesn't matter how close you are to the center. It matters which direction you're headed. So evangelism in this isn't focused on getting people across the line. Yes, there are markers. And I'm not saying that there aren't markers and that big moments aren't important. We had a baptism this morning, and that's a vital point in the journey of faith. We don't want to belittle that at all. But it is to say that once you get in, that's not enough. There's a journey of discipleship that happens after that. The the way I'd image it is this. Baptism is not the finish line of spirituality. Baptism is the starting line. It's where you get your race number. I've run a marathon before, 
And I've got to tell you, when you get that race number, you have a long way to go, okay? And there have been seasons where I've heard people that when their kids get baptized, there will be others that will come up to them and they'll say, oh, you've done such a good job. Aren't you glad your job is finished? The job's not finished, is it? It's just begun. The Holy Spirit's just showing up. Sanctification is now possible in a whole new way. So in this model, we don't congregate around the boundaries because, well, we're not so certain about that. What we're trying to congregate is around Jesus, the vision in Revelation that we see, the one who surrounds the throne and we worship him with all the praise we can muster. So conversion is an event that gets you across the line. Conversion is an ever-growing process that never ends in the discipleship process. We're always disciples on a journey following Jesus. So the finish line is not getting in. The finish line is pursuing Christ's likeness until either Jesus returns or our journey on earth is complete. Now, movements tend to move in one direction. Most movements start here, honestly. Because the leader who, who starts that movement, they have a driving vision. They have a vision that's so clear in their minds. Jesus knew what he was trying to produce. The problem is, over time, the second, the third generation, you no longer have the leader who has the clear vision. And what do you do? You begin to kind of define yourself by who's in and who's out. And you begin to kind of devolve into this. And churches that thrive are churches that don't get stuck in the boundary-setting mentality, but they remind themselves there's a center that's more important that can get lost in the midst of building an institution. The church cannot be an institution. Institutions die. It has to be an organism, a living organism that seeks God in all that we do. So bounded uh, set churches are hard at the edges. They're soft at the center But hear me clearly, centered set churches may be soft to the boundaries in some ways, but they are hard on the center. They know exactly what the center is. They're driving toward it. It defines everything for them. It's the filter for how they live their lives together. And I think Jesus faced this issue, don't you? And the Pharisees did this kind of work. You had all the laws in the Old Testament, right? And what the Pharisees did was they, they didn't want to disobey God because they ended up in exile when they did that before. And so the idea was, here's the laws around Sabbath. Let's create some more laws around those laws so we know we won't offend God with the other laws. So you start building this kind of boundary around the law so that you won't even get close to crossing the boundary of offending God when it comes down to that. And then that becomes the marker of who's in and who's out. And what Jesus says is, look, I didn't make... I didn't make I didn't make you for the Sabbath. I made the Sabbath for you. Like, this is supposed to be a life-giving thing. And what you're doing is you're putting this boundary around it, and it's actually killing your life instead of giving you life. So the work of Jesus over and over again is to take people who are trying to kind of ritualize and institutionalize. He's trying to drive it back to say, this is about following Jesus. This is about the restoration of all things. In John chapter 4, there's a story about the Samaritan woman. And Jesus has kind of caught her in her lifestyle. He said, yeah, I know what's going on. And there's this moment of shame. But it's interesting what the woman does in John 4. You remember that story? Right after Jesus kind of catches her about the five husbands and the one that she's living with now, there's this line that the woman gives in John chapter 4. I don't have these words up actually tonight. So Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. This is the woman's response. She says, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. That's a strange response to the shame she must have felt from that enlightenment from Jesus. 
she, she goes into theological, like, fight mode is what she does. It's like, well, we're Samaritans, and this is what we believe, and you believe this about where you should worship. So what's really right about that? It's like a diversion tactic, isn't it? But it's about the boundary markers. It's about, are you right or are we right? And, and Jesus doesn't fall for it. What he says is, what you desire is living water. What you desire is what's the, at the core of this all that gives you life, that gives you what you need. You don't desire religion and trying to get it all right. What you desire is the living water, and I am the living water. In Acts chapter 15, the church is struggling, trying to figure out what to do with Gentiles. And the questions are these kinds of questions. Is it okay for the Gentiles to be a part of us? Do they have to do all these things in order to be in and a part of our group? And at the end of that, what, is, what do they say? There are some boundary markers. Sexual immorality is not okay. You need to eat in such a way that you can eat with one another. And so Gentiles, if you would bind yourself in some ways so that you can be at table with Jews, that would be a great thing. But ultimately, it's not about binding at the boundaries. What it is is we're pursuing the heart of Christ. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus can follow. The question when it comes to this is, are they one of us? The question in a centered set church is, are they one of his? And tonight as we close this message, as we come back to worship, I guess I want to draw you back to Jesus. Because it's so easy in church to get caught up in all these boundary markers of who's in and who's out of this and that and get caught up in so many things. But ultimately what we're trying to do is to put Jesus on display. We're trying to make him famous in the city in ways that he's not currently trying to fascinate people into the kingdom of God. And I don't know about you, that's a church I want to be a part of. A church that gives life, a church that brings people to the water source, that sinks a well and digs a well and says, we're not going to so much worry about the boundary markers. Those things are important conversations for another day. What we're most intentional about is sinking a well and knowing that the, the living water is here. And you won't wander far from that when you know your life source is what keeps you going. Church, let's point them to Jesus. I've seen what happens when we convert people to a church. Boy, it gets ugly, doesn't it? Because you're almost resistant to Jesus at that point because it's about trying to get people in just the right, it's about just believe like us and behave like us and we'll let you belong. But what would it be like to be a part of a movement that says, we're going to let you belong and then those things are going to work itself out? instead of building walls, church, I'm going to encourage us to dig wells. Let's figure out what that life source is. Let's put it on display. Let's live it ourselves and see what God does. Amen? Let's pray as we close. God, you are good. And there have been times where I've questioned that, where I've wondered about this whole God the Father thing and what are you up to and why all this background and why all this baggage and why do institutions do this? And I really want to get rid of that, God. I really want this to be about Jesus. So in my own life, God, would you put that well there? Would you keep it full? Would you keep drawing me back to that, not to the institutional questions we sometimes get caught up in? God, I love churches. I believe the church is the hope of the world when we put Jesus at the center of it. So God, would you use us to be hope to this world? Would would you work in us so that it's not converting people to churches, but it's converting people to a Savior that we are about? God, would you give us life every step of the way? We love you, and we especially are fascinated by this Jesus who's changed everything in our lives. So God, tonight as we close, would you 
would you point our hearts again this week toward Jesus? Would you make him the center of all that we do and all that we're about? We know there's no condemnation for those who are in him. And that we're more than conquerors through him. And that's what we sing about tonight. Amen.